This episode and all of our South by Southwest coverage is brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Merriam-Webster defines democratization as to make something available to all people, to make it possible for all people to understand something. So when we talk the democratization of filmmaking, in a way we're talking about the evolution of filmmaking itself. Over the past decade or so, we have seen some radical changes in both the type of video content that is being created and the industry at large. Not only are filmmaking tools growing more sophisticated, they are becoming cheaper to access as well. What's more, the language of film itself has seemingly been instilled in the minds of new generations of creators who have grown up with social media platforms like Instagram, Vine, and TikTok. These creators are learning to edit and tell stories, whether that's their intention or not. At South by Southwest, I led a panel featuring Instagram co-founder Mike Krieger, Kitsput co-founder Lizbeth Kaufman, and Frame.io founder Emery Wells. We discussed how each of their platforms has contributed to the democratization of filmmaking, what the revolution means to them, and how emerging filmmakers should be taking advantage. At several points in the conversation, you'll hear me come back and actually summarize questions that have been asked by the audience so that you can then hear our guests' responses. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. I'm John Fusco. I am uh, a senior producer, the senior producer at No Film School, and uh, this is our panel on the democratization of film. Um, I'm just going to let you guys introduce yourselves and your companies so that uh, everyone can know what it is that you do and why you're up here. So let's start with you. You, you, you have a pretty well-known company. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm Mike Krieger, co-founder and up till October CTO at Instagram. So we started Instagram in 2010, uh, grew it to over a billion people using it, introduced video, which is, I'm not going to call it film, but at least we had video on there in 2013. Um, and uh, yeah, left in October, have been like figuring out next steps since then. Um, but it's been interesting seeing like the rise of film, not just video on Instagram. So I'm excited to be here and, uh, and to talk. Hey, I'm Lizbeth Kaufman. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of KitSplit. Um, so KitSplit, we're a gear rental marketplace, um, and we're a community of 45,000 filmmakers, production companies, and rental houses, all renting gear to and from each other. Um, so we make it very easy and affordable, and we have insurance. I will leave it at that. I am Emery Wells, co-founder and CEO of Frame.io. We are a video review and collaboration platform with about 750,000 filmmakers from all around the world that use Frame.io to upload large media files, upload dailies from a shoot, upload work in progress edits, get feedback from all the people that you work with, and really just kind of streamline the entire communication process that exists when you are creating Video, I say video now instead of film. Video used to be a bad word, and I'm curious if you think it's still a bad word in the filmmaking industry. Uh, I, you know, I don't think there are any bad words in the filmmaking industry. I don't discriminate. Um, but it has, it was a bad word for a long time. It was, it was I mean, no, no, we don't make video, we make, we do films. Yeah, right? well, there's the whole film Cinema. versus content debate, um, and I think that's just a natural side effect of how many different platforms there are to show video now. Um, you know, all of you are up here because 
you in some way have helped it make easier for filmmakers to get their work seen, um, whether that's a film or a video or content. Um, that's what we're talking about here on this panel. That is what the democratization of filmmaking is. Um, I've had people come up and ask me, you know, like, what is this panel about? What does this word mean to you? Um, and I think, I think that's what it means to me, but I'd be interested to hear you all define what the democratization of film is. I think a pattern I saw when we launched Photos, which was 2010, that I saw again with video film, uh, was this um, initial rejection by the people who were already good or established or professionals in the field. So everybody like expected our first you know, 100,000 people to join on Instagram to be photographers, but photographers hated Instagram when it launched because the photos were tiny, they were filtered, which was like not cool for like if you're doing photos professionally. Uh, we made the trade-off of focusing on making it easy to upload and quick rather than like super high res, you know? And those were the right trade-offs for building a social product rather than building like Flickr, which was more about showcasing your work. Um, and I think the same thing happened when we launched video. Like we launched video, I don't know if folks remember, I think our limit was 15 seconds. Like, to tell a story in 15 seconds, but you have to be really good to tell a very compelling story in 15 seconds. And what you mostly saw then was like experimental things and also just stuff that wasn't really a story. It was somebody who'd already been following for a while, but maybe they turned the camera on themselves and talked for a while, you know, and it's just more of a first person thing. But I've seen it as we evolved it, you know, all of a sudden you can do a minute with IGTV, you can do an hour, like we've loosened the constraints. And what that's led to, I think, is more of people who, see themselves as filmmakers being able to express themselves on the platform. I think it's still a long way from being like a great place for filmmakers to express themselves, but you start seeing people be able to say, hey, I made this film and I'm gonna put it up on this and it's vertical, which is kind of weird, but like I'm gonna play with this format and maybe that's actually normal for me because that's how I like learned to shoot. So you see that start happening, but again, I think what's interesting is that the trajectory does not start by all the experts in the field coming in from the first day. It's more people who don't really already have like a stake in the, medium, I guess. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will follow up uh, on that is, you know, Instagram is also a great place for filmmakers to be promoting their own work. Um, so I was wondering maybe if you could speak to that a little bit. Like, what have you seen uh, that has been an effective way, how filmmakers have used Instagram for advertising? Yeah. I think what's been interesting for me is seeing the full range of roles in that sense. Like, um, just this week, I discovered this animator who does insane his name is Patrick Forty, if you want to find him. His account is incredible. Uh, he does insanely good 3D renders and he does animations. And like, that's not necessarily like a person I would have sought out, but the stuff is so good and visual and interesting that like it found its way through me through, you know, I was an explorer and it showed up there. Somebody had liked it. Um, I think that's been true for other things too. Either it's um, people who have some talent even within like the full spectrum of roles in film and can demonstrate it in some interesting way. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden found that, like my favorite band is The National. And the guy who does their like uh, sound and, or their light design and synchronization, I discovered on Instagram. And like, you know, again, like what would be his like output otherwise? Like you go to the show, you know, but all of a sudden there is now a portfolio on there that is interesting. So I, I guess like bubbling up, it's like people finding ways of promoting themselves beyond like, here is my like, five minutes short. It's like, here's a showcase of this thing I'm really, really good at within this world of, you know, light and sound. Totally. Lisbeth, do you want to tell us what you think the democratization of film is? Yes. So at KidSplit, we think a lot about this. Um, we basically function on a premise that expressing one's view or storytelling is like a human right. 
Um, and so we want, our goal is to enable all storytellers, all filmmakers to have access to the tools they need, um, regardless of background and budget and location. So we've built this system so, to make it very easy for filmmakers, storytellers to get their gear um, and get their story out there. Um, so we think a lot about that. And like, I think it's super, like the idea of democratizing filmmaking and expanding access is so important um, because you, know, you said this a bit as well, but getting more voices out there that historically haven't been represented in film is just like extremely important. Um, Film teaches us to see, and if there, if everything in film is from one perspective, we are missing out on a lot of stuff. Um, and it's also just much more interesting to be watching different kinds of films from a plurality of people and perspectives. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how we think about it. Do you often get thing people reach back out and say, "Here's the thing I made using the gear I rented"? Because that'd be a fun like closing of the feedback loop for you guys. Yes, totally. We get projects all the time, and they're awesome. Um, and actually, like we just had one like a woman in Atlanta. Um, I think her name's like Lakeisha Atkins. Um, she she lives in a gear desert, kind of like a food desert, but like there's no gear houses there for her to use, um, but she was able to use KitSplit to rent gear right in her neighborhood, and she made an awesome short film, um, and now that film is out in the world, um, and she was able to do it really easily and affordably, and she rented from another woman on uh, KitSplit who you know, now is able to use that money towards her next film. Um, so there's kind of this like virtual, virtuous cycle of all of that. Emery, how about you? So I, I think I put a slightly different angle on democratization. I think democratization has there's two there's two main parts to it. There are you know there are kind of um, barriers due to you know budgets or you know equipment or things like that, uh, and you can knock those down and still not democratize video because the other part of it is inclusion. So you know historically the outlets that we've had for the, the content, the video content that gets produced is not an inclusive environment. Whether you're talking about you know, episodic television or feature films, uh, they, are, they are not open to different types of stories, different types of people. And um, so to me, that's actually kind of one of the more, I think the democratization of the, of the you know, equipment, it's all become very affordable. There's lots of software that allows you to do this. That's, that's been going on for a while, but I think the, the newer part is the inclusiveness. And I'm seeing the inclusiveness really show itself through platforms like Instagram. When you see people who never were invited to be a storyteller all of a sudden become a storyteller, and they're actually really, really good. It's, it's amazing to see, it's amazing to see you know, young people on social media platforms that have had you know, clearly no training on how to, do, how to create video, but they, they create stuff that's really entertaining. And I, you know, they put stuff to music and it's all, on, it's, it's all timed out really well. I don't know if you've ever tried to hire an, edit, an editor that knows how to do you know, like really tight timing that like, can hear the beat and it's cutting to every single beat. Like those editors are paid a lot of money and I see this happening on social all the time. People are doing stuff and I'm like, wow, I would love to hire that person. They're actually a really good, uh, they're a really good creator. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I see happening now. It also allows like kids to start doing this at a very young age and sort of get their filmmaking bones about them. Um, 
and you know, we're talking about inclusiveness. You talk about how gear has just been getting cheaper. Um, I'm actually interested, Elizabeth, in like what your highest, uh, most rented piece of gear is. And you know, are, are they cinema cameras, or are we looking at something like a Sony A7, or are we looking at something like a, a Panasonic GH5? You know, is it are they cheaper cameras, or are they more expensive cameras? Yeah, so the digital cinema cameras are very popular, like the Red, the Black Magics, um, but there are just simply more A7S IIs, and they're amazing cameras. The GH5 is also an amazing camera, um, and just because there are so many of those out there, they're getting rented more. Mm -hmm. They're more on kit split, and there's more demand for them. Um, and they're also more accessible as well. So like, you know, it's more affordable um, as a day rate. Um, A7S II is like the yeah, top camera getting rented. And they're easier to use too. I think again, the learning curve is something that is a byproduct of this uh, democratization of film. Um, another thing, Emery, uh, about Frame.io in particular and the democratization of film is it allows collaboration, I think, to exist in a way that hasn't previously been there before. Can you speak a little bit about what your site or your, your platform does for editors and filmmakers? Sure. So one of the primary use cases of Frame.io is for people to upload their work in progress edits and um, allow all the people that they're working with, whether it's clients or other, um, other stakeholders they're working with, to, to comment, to give feedback. Uh, we have time-stamped comments. So how many of you guys are editors out, out here? Some editors, directors, producers. Okay, so hopefully you all have gone through the experience of creating, uh, creating video and needing to either give feedback or receive feedback. And most of you have probably done it through emails, right? You're writing an email, you're like, hey, um, all right, let me see, how am I gonna explain this? Um, so the beginning part's really good, but then at one minute and 10 seconds and two frames, there's, I think the thing he said should come before that thing he said before, uh, right? It's really difficult to communicate in an email with time-based media. So Frame.io allows you to comment directly on a frame and you can draw and annotate on the frame if you need to further communicate your idea. Um, and you, know, you can do this from a mobile device, you can do it from our web app, we have integrations with Premiere, After Effects, Media Composer, Final Cut Pro. So um, it allows you to collaborate in a way that people just weren't able to do before. So in terms of democratization and inclusiveness, there's, this kind of falls into two categories. There are you know, people who are in markets that don't have big, you know, kind of big media industries and they're able to um, to market themselves and actually have a workflow that is that is usable, so they can get hired by people that are outside their markets. We occasionally hear from people that are in you know just crazy parts of the world that have no film industry, and they're able to to market themselves uh, and do work with Frame.io. And then there's also just you know people that that uh, you know are typical kind of content creators in LA, but they, you, know, you have crazy, crazy travel schedules and you're shooting in five different locations at once and they say, you know, we, could never, we never would have been able to do this if we didn't have something like Frame.io to kind of keep, all the, keep everything on track as we're moving at 1,000 miles per hour. It's like a natural product of the democratization of film is the globalization of film in a way where it makes it easier to actually work from across the country or from wherever, you know? Um, one thing I'm actually interested in is, uh, would you say that your, uh, that Frame.io can help people to actually learn how to use nonlinear editing software like Premiere in, a, in any way? 
not necessarily our application itself, but we make a huge investment in education. So at the end of last year, we launched something called the Workflow Guide, which was a map, it's a book. It's, it's the most comprehensive book ever written on workflow. This was several months of effort by, you know, it was, we have contributors from, you know, the best people in, in the post-production industry. Uh, and we put it out for free. So it'll take you like two weeks to read it cover to cover. It's really, really, really in-depth. Um, so we do invest a lot in education. And it's, it's, gra it's like really ground level education. I think a lot of people, what, what tends to happen as you kind of enter a field is um, you start to learn things and there's, all, there's these kind of missing pieces of information that sort of the tree trunk is missing. So like you're kind of out in the branches, but you don't really understand, like you do, you do this stuff out here, but you don't really understand why it works or how it works or if you, if, why you're doing it. And um, we wanted to solve that by, by putting out this workflow guide. So. Nice contribution to the industry. It's interesting that um, I've not, and maybe there's a, just a constraint of screen size, and maybe the iPad has more of these, but um, it's not like mobile has been a good on-ramp for learning a nonlinear editor, right? Like we, I mean, I give full credit to Vine that had a really simple early kind of like cut sequence, right? Which is like you held it down and then you stopped and you held it down again. Like, wow, those are two different clips and they go one after the other, which is like new at the time, right? And you know, we did something similar um, and even with stories now, you can actually just hit record and we'll cut you up into 15 second segments if you want for stories. But like, we would get a lot of questions, especially as we were building IGTV, people would be like, I wanna make a good, like our employees, cause like before we launched it for months, we were having our employees use it. And when we built stories, like everybody can make a story. It's like not hard, you might not make a good story, but it's not that hard. But people were like really wanted to create good IGTV content, even on our employee base. And they're like, the mobile editing landscape is really hard. Like, they, were, they didn't really find anything that was that compelling, and most, if not all of them, found themselves on the desktop using Final Cut or using Premiere Pro, which is like, it's just an interesting observation of where we are in 2019. And there's obviously like screen size and asset size and all these different constraints that have happened, but do you see that as an interesting area, or do you like think we'll just keep doing the laptop no, so you're absolutely right. For a long time, it has been a, a graveyard of good video creation apps that, that really gave you the power to create good stories. And I think recently we've seen that change. And there's one app in particular. Um, now, see, there's, there's two, two different approaches that are happening on mobile. There are people that are taking the typical sort of nonlinear editing paradigm and, and making it really good on mobile. And this, this uh, app called LumaTouch has done that. They've done an incredible job. It's like Final Cut on mobile, it's full featured, it's awesome, it's, it's remarkable how good it is. And then there are people who are saying, you know what, we're gonna rethink it. If you've never edited before, you don't even necessarily have all these you know, ideas, these same kind of timeline ideas, and we're gonna rethink it and make it super simple. And so I've seen some apps do it, do it that way as well. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but it's, we really are starting to enter, I think, a new era of, of really high quality mobile creation experiences. It's interesting that you mentioned stories because I feel like stories in themselves are sort of a natural way to learn how to edit because you're like putting together certain moments in certain sequential order, do you know what I mean? So you're still getting that base knowledge of editing, you're just not getting the sort of technical know-how of an NLE bond. You're getting the most important part. Yeah, which totally. is Which is learning how to, you know, to be creative. How to tell a story, <laughs> really. Um, you know, you mentioned Instagram TV. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what Instagram TV uh, can do as a platform for emerging filmmakers, for people who are looking to get more into creating content, creating video? 
Yeah, and I'll say like of all the things that was hard about leaving, leaving like three months after launching IGTV was one of the hardest things. Because any product at three months is like a baby product. Like it has a lot of like work left to do on it and a lot of like growth left. So and that team's like taking it on, but it's like it was a hard thing to leave. Um, the premise was we had capped videos at one minute for a long time on Instagram, and people would always ask like, you know, if you we would look at the histogram of length of videos on Instagram, and it was like a few in like the 10 to 15 second range, and then a bunch that were 60 seconds long, which is basically ones that would have been longer if we'd let them be longer, but they weren't. Hmm. Um, so whenever you see something like that, you're basically having your user base tell you what to build, and you should build it, because if not somebody else will, they'll just use a different product. Um, so we started asking, all right, how can we do longer video on Instagram? And we think if, if all we do is just make the feed videos longer, that doesn't really feel right, because feed is like you're scrolling through quickly, and you're not necessarily want to dive into a longer experience. We're like, all right, needs a dedicated home, um, which is why we like kind of built it as a separate experience. And now the team's actually been like now watching from afar what they've been doing. Like I think are finding ways of integrating it into feed, like start the video in feed, and if you're interested, you can go in and dive in and watch it, you know, fully or, or save it for later. And I, just judging from the view counts on those videos, it seems to be working better than having a totally dedicated space. So there's obviously like a interesting art to introducing this new kind of consumption experience and not like totally ruining the rest of the product. And I think that's always the balance. Um, but the idea really is like, and I think especially in the early days of IGTV, like the core audience there is like people who are native to mobile often have a following already on Instagram of like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions, and want to tell those longer stories. That can be episodic, that can be you know a longer kind of tutorial of whatever they're really good at. It could be an exploration of something that they're doing. Um, so that was the premise. Um, it was really like, the beauty of Instagram is that we started it by making like business accounts and celebrity accounts and normal people's accounts like exactly the same. Now there's the blue check. I guess that's like the thing. By the way, I left Instagram. I still get verification requests. <laughs> I think I'll be getting them till the day I die. Um, I can't verify you on Instagram. I'm sorry. Um, but the 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 nice thing about it was it let people break out who were new to that platform, and that's the hope I think with IGTV is that you'll get obviously existing filmmakers have great content that they could put in there. I've seen like major studios start cutting for vertical and put it on IGTV, or some just say like rotate your phone, which is, you know, fine. Um, but then others are uh, like new and upcoming and are gonna be breakout stars on IGTV, and I think that's an exciting like new distribution mechanism. Have you seen any of those success stories yet where it's... I've seen a good, like a good exercise for you to do is to open up IGTV and then switch over to popular because that's like usually not people that you follow. So I don't know their names, but they're like, what I loved first of all was like representation wise, it was like a much broader representation than you might expect from just like opening up a popular page. Um, like the top star when I was opening up was this like, Latino kid, I think he looked like he was 16 or 17 years old, had a great like personality, clearly had a series that he was running and people really flocked to, had like, two million views. Um, but what's interesting, as like a product designer, you kind of cross this interesting threshold, like it's not necessarily the video I watch, which is kind of a funny thing as a product designer, but it's huge. So like you start having to build for beyond just like your you know bubble that you've been operating in until then. Do you have any tips or tricks for anyone who's looking to get like a little boost in the algorithm? Be a founder. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> it's cheating. Um, it's cliche, but hashtags have actually still, I've seen this like from the internal data, still end up being like the strongest distribution mechanism. The reason is 
Explore. So half the videos on Instagram get seen on Explore. There's your fun fact for the day. Um, and that's supposed to because Explore is very video centric, right? You can watch one video and it chains you into other videos. Um, there's those organizations around, uh, like topic collections around events or around hashtags and all these things. So that ends up being still actually uniquely useful for video, mostly because of Explore. Okay, so shifting away from the uh, Instagram or uh, smaller content back to maybe people who want to build their own kits, I was wondering, you know, based off of some of the numbers that you've ha had in your past with KitSplit, <clears throat> how long would you say it would take for someone who wants to buy a kit, like a full kit, to make that money back renting out their kit? Good question. Um, so most kits are like, if you think about the day rate and the, I guess, proportion of the total value of the gear, that can help you figure out how long it would take to earn back the total value of that gear. So most kits are priced at like 2% to 5%. So it could take like 20 to, what is it, 20 to 50 days um, to, you know, of rental days to earn back your total investment. That's really um, good. Yeah, right? It's like not, that is very doable. Um, and so most people are earning more than what they've invested in their gear. Do you have any stats on, you know, the, the amount? Of, I assume that gear is, most gear is unused 98% of the time. Yeah, right, because they're like, you know, the production cycle, you're, you, maybe you're shooting for a week, but then you're in post-production using Frame.io to like edit and all of that. And so during that time, when your gear's not being used, like, do you guys have any data on that and like what portion of time most gear is just sitting on a shelf? It's a, it, that is a really good question. It's hard to actually collect that data. Um, but it, I'd be interested. You should survey your users. Yeah, yeah, I, that is a good idea. It's um, not necessarily sitting on the shelf, though, because, you know, you can be using it in that time on your own projects, which is the whole benefit of owning a kit, like you'd hope. Uh, yeah, I just assume that even people that are doing their own projects, I don't know what that, I don't know what, you know, I assume it's like similar to the parked car data. You know, I think people are probably driving their cars as often as they're shooting with sure. their cameras. Yeah, totally. Or less, or less, a lot less. Spot the New Yorker yeah, in the room. <laughs> Do you uh, have any tips for people who want to like get their gear noticed more, like potentially have more attractive buying value? Yes, uh, definitely. So, you know, there's buying the gear that's very popular, which is a good idea, um, but then there's also buying gear that's hard to find and that's more unique. Um, that definitely helps you stand out. Um, and then there's also building like full, complete kits that are usable for people like fresh out of, you know, straight straight onto the on onto the shoot. Um, so that includes all those like annoying little things like, um, the support, the batteries, like the, the wiring. Um, so yeah, building like a complete kit um, is definitely, definitely a good idea. Yeah, and even like filters and uh, I mean lenses are also huge. We haven't really talked about those at all. Uh, how, uh, how many like unique lenses would you say users are putting on kit split versus maybe just like a Canon uh, ENG? Yeah, there are so many lenses out there. It's it's wild and awesome. Like the variety of options for filmmakers and cinematographers. Um, I had, there are definitely more, many more lenses than, than cameras, like just in terms of what exists on the market. Um, 
So, so yeah, and investing in lenses is also um, always a good idea yeah. because they uh, it takes longer for them to go obsolete, whereas the cameras, as everyone knows, are kind of, you know changing every year or every few years. Um, yeah, and people are still shooting on lenses made in like the 1960s. Yeah. So, I mean, if you really keep those things, they'll become antiques, and then you can really hit the pay dirt later on. Should we take any questions from the yeah, do you, audience? Do, do you have any questions in the meantime? So just to repeat the question, um, is there like a marketplace or a platform for writers or compositors or crew? Um, so animators, yeah. Um, so there are a few platforms um, for sourcing crew and for sourcing writers. Um, so I, I mean, there's like Production Hub and a few others, um, but not nothing yet. Um, and ultimately, at KitSplit, you know, we've got all the we've got so many of the crew on the platform that eventually we'd love to offer up a place for them to get hired as well. Um, yeah, I think crewing is a big challenge um, when putting together shoots. The international angle, I think, is really interesting. Kind of like fits into the Frame IO thing as well, right? Where you're like you can bring in collaborators beyond where you are. Any more questions? Sure. This audience member asked, is a lower level of quality now more acceptable because of the democratization of film? Will that hurt video professionals who specialize in quote-unquote high-quality products? Does that also hurt people who own more expensive high-quality gear? So the, the way I think about it is, is twofold. Um, this, this is something that continues to happen like in so many different markets and so many different industries. When I started doing post-production, you could charge a lot of money because you just had access to gear and it was, it was actually really hard to do something that was high quality. You, just, you, you had to have access to the gear. So if you could get your hands on an Avid Media Composer and spend $200,000, just having that piece of equipment allowed you to bring in, to bring in customers. And that's gone away. And that's, in my opinion, that's a, that's a good thing because I, I find that the most talented people still continue to get hired and continue to command the rates that they always have if they, if they, are, really to, if they are really able to offer a differentiated service. But then the second part of it is uh, I think that quality has now reached a certain level where it's even the lowest quality is still like really, really high quality. I mean, shooting 4K on your iPhone is miles, miles, miles better than it was you know, shooting mini-DV 15 years ago or however long, 20 years ago, whatever that was. And quality has become an aesthetic choice. It's actually now an aesthetic choice. And in fact, really polished stuff often doesn't work well on the biggest distribution channels that we have, which is social media. The more polished you are, it's uh, like people want they, they want, they want real connections. They want to feel like, you know, um, they, want, they want it to feel real. And so I think that the stuff that is less polished tends to perform better on social. I would say I, I think that there are two very different markets. You know, you, you have like people who are shooting cinema movies on Alexas and you have people shoot. Well, and you can also, I mean, if you're Soderbergh, you can make a movie on an iPhone and it can be released by Netflix, but not everyone can do that. You're not like, there aren't movies being distributed in theaters often that are shot on iPhones. You're still getting the same, you know, Alexas, more than Reds. Um, so I think that that value of the camera, if you were going to rent from like KitSplit or from a, uh, another rental house, would still be much higher, you know, than 
another camera, say, than the A7S or even the GH5, you'd still be charging people, what, like $600, $700 a, a day for a, an Alexa versus $150, $200 for an A7S? So, Which, by the way, that's come down dramatically. So I had one of the very first RED cameras in New York City, and I used to be able to charge a lot of money for that, for that camera. $1,600 yeah. day rate. You can't do that anymore. That's just part of what, that's just part of what happens, I think, with, with any, anything, anytime an industry is, is democratized. Um, and so you have to figure out another vector for you to compete, where you were once able to compete and build a business off of having access to high-end equipment. You know, that goes away. You got to find the next thing. Yeah, the whole industry. I mean, it's it is kind of like a macro question about the industry. Like, what's and I I mean, we're kind of living. I mean, we're living in a golden era for content, right? There's like an explosion of content production in the U.S. It's sixty billion dollars a year, and then there's there's international. Um, and I think like you guys were were talking about, there's content for different platforms and different distribution channels. Um, so like on Instagram, it would be more authentic and maybe what you might think of as lower quality, but there's still so much content being made at the higher end as well. I mean, like Netflix alone is doing what, 400 productions this year or something. Um, so, you know, there is, so like when I think, like thinking about, like you asked about the, our, our, is like Ari, Alexa, Amir, are they going to become obsolete? Like, I don't think so. Um, the, like, and, and actually, like, Instagram is an awesome feeder into, it's like people discover the storytelling experience on Instagram with their phone, and then maybe they become really passionate and realize they're really talented at it, and then they can go into the next step and get uh, the next level up camera and, and continue to post on Instagram as well as elsewhere and get more professional. Um, so it feels like an exp expansion across the whole industry. Yeah, I would say also in a gig economy, if you're looking to get work hired by like a an aid, like a brand or, or whatever, then you have an elect. If you have an Alexa, it's probably going to be uh, a greater chance that you get hired to work for that company than if you have a Sony A7. Like they'll be looking for a high qu higher quality camera. I mean, they'll, they'll they'll yeah, they do. But if you own the camera, then you know you have a better chance of getting hired. Any more questions? This person asked, how does Instagram go about curation of content? Yeah, and this was an interesting conversation I was having right before the panel was this like thing we always were trying to figure out was what's the balance of human and like algorithmic curation that we do at Instagram, right? Like your main feed is obviously algorithmic, but it's the people you follow, so it's already a mix of your human decisions plus like the amount of like, you know, it will rank it. Explore is this interesting space where actually we've done more human fed things. So, you know, whether it's about featuring a particular filmmaker on an editorial channel or just a set of people who are doing interesting things within a channel. Um, but one thing I always thought was interesting, and maybe they'll get around to it, I hope, um, is the idea of opening up curation beyond just the Instagram editorial voice. So, you know, on Instagram, you can save things for later. Um, I always thought it'd be interesting if you could, like, open up your saves because some people are amazing creators and lots of people are amazing curators and collectors as well. Um, and I think that's an underappreciated kind of facet of Instagram. And like you find them sometimes, like you'll talk to a friend, you're like, oh, how'd you discover these 10 accounts? They're just like, I don't know, I just, that's, I, do good at, I get good at it. I found isn't, that, really good. isn't that happening now? There's some kind of um, 
I thought I just read that on TechCrunch that there is like a Pinterest style shared public Right, which is something we kicked around for a long time. So I don't know if that's just old code that somebody managed to like resurface or they're actually shipping it and then building it. But I always thought that was like an open opportunity around that. And then, for example, you could imagine more stat like a film festival could have more of like a more proper place on Instagram. I mean, it can already by like reposting the other videos, but it doesn't quite feel as native and it's harder to link to the original like creator. Any more questions? Okay, I have a question. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the, that is certainly like a negative of the uh, like growing options, but can we focus on maybe some of the, the more positive things that have come out of uh, the democratization of film? Like what have you seen uh, specifically that has uh, sort of lifted film in a way? Besides, I mean, we talked about inclusivity, but if we can get a little deeper, I think. I think like the, so I remember really distinctly the news stories that came out when House shot like an episode on whatever, I think it was probably, what was that? Was that a 5D? Yeah. And everyone's like, oh my God. And like, it seems so quaint now, right? Like the idea that like this camera that, you know, is the, you know, awesome photo camera also shoots 4K and like all these, all these things. But I think a fun part and, you know, it comes a little bit on this like on-ramping to content production comes from the fact that equipment often makes it into people's lives. And the, what I mean by that, so I'll use an example. There's a woman named Laura, and she runs a channel called Laura DIY. She's big on YouTube. She's also on Instagram. And she goes around her house, and she's doing DIY projects, et cetera. Point being, she'll often be in the mirror with her, you know, whenever she probably has an A7. Um, and what I love is that, like, you see people who are her fans who are probably mostly 13 to 15 years old, a lot of them are, are getting exposed to, like, what camera equipment do I use? And then they probably, they also sometimes are like, hey, look at this screenshot of me like editing my next video. So I think this, we haven't really talked about this yet, but part of the democratization has been the sort of peeling back of some layers by making process part of the product, especially on Instagram, I think. Like that's a normal thing to do is post a story, like link in bio, but like here's like my process photo. I think that demystifies it as well, you know, in a way that like, We'll hopefully get more people to be like, all right, maybe I'll try something with a real camera one day, real camera one day, you know? Maybe I'll try editing. Like, I'm gonna like, I, because for them, and this was a thing I had to, it took me years to fully internalize. It took me going to VidCon and seeing like to the level of which, you know, influencers or really like creators are, you know, those generations, celebrities to a degree that like, that sounds like a cliche, but you go there and you like really feel like that's true. Um, to the extent that people wanna mimic them and be them, it means them learning to make Film, video, which is cool, I think. I think a point that we're sort of, we've been talking about uh, is the, the, the high quality stuff is never going to cease to exist. People are gonna continue to do stuff in Hollywood. People are gonna continue to do stuff in, for, with episodic television. But the new thing that's happened is that the, the tools to make, you know, the tools to make content very easily are now also accepted as really entertaining forms that are valid forms. It's validation of this form that was not valid before. It doesn't invalidate the high-end stuff that's gonna continue, but video on your phone is not looked down upon because it can get millions and millions of views and it can generate really big dollars for, you know, whether it's influencers or companies that are making this types, this, these types of content. 
Yeah, totally. And I think what you were talking about with sort of like the behind the scenes stuff, how the, the creation process is becoming part of the entertainment is so fascinating. Because um, it's just letting, it's just making it so much easier to learn how to make this content. Um, and then I, I think another benefit to this whole concept of democratizing filmmaking um, is like there's just, okay, because there's lower barrier to entry, there's like less risk, which means that people can experiment, you know? People can make crazy shit and like it can be really entertaining and fun. Um, or it can be bad, and it's like not a big deal. It's just a post you you put up, and and maybe it disappears if it's a story. Yeah. Um, and that's super inspiring. I mean, that right? is video on the internet. What you just described, yeah. right? Yeah. That is what has created this explosion of stuff that nobody in their right mind would have thought was worth investing in making. Yeah. But then it becomes some of the most popular content that exists. Yeah, it becomes popular in its own right on social media and all these platforms. And then I think we're seeing it start to infiltrate the, the like higher end expense, you know, blockbuster stuff as well. So getting to see that has, is awesome. And like we're in the entertainment business. It should be entertaining and surprising. Um, I think one, one example of this at the high end, I was, we were talking about this before the panel, is this film Searching. I, I did a panel with them, the editors, yesterday. The entire film was shot on iPhone and GoPro, um, and it, the, the whole thing takes place on a computer screen. So this was a feature-length film that takes place on a computer screen. And, there's no, and, and it's a very compelling film. It won, a, won an award at Sundance. And, you know... That, that is validation at the highest level of even you know, feature films that, that the storytelling is it's, it's the most important thing. It doesn't, people have a really high tolerance for you know, low quality video. And like, they don't really care as long as the storytelling is good. And in this case, low quality video is what you needed to tell the story because it was all through like video chat and things like that. So you do need good audio. They have no tolerance for bad audio. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, would, I mean, I would say script would fall into the storytelling category. Also, I would, you know, we're, we're no film school, and one thing that we haven't really even discussed is the ability to now have access to tools to make film without going to film school and without dropping, like, $60,000 a year on tuition. Um, you can now learn on the internet. You can go to, like, Linda and learn how to use NLE software. You can pick up a iPhone, shoot on that, Upgrade, you know. Um, I guess one of my my last question because I want to like have some time to all get some drinks and talk a little bit more um, would be how can we what can we do to sort of further this trend? Like how do we increase the democratization of film? I think to me one area is and you alluded to this a little bit, Emery, but the question of like what is the business model around like the full spectrum of video like. We've solved, I think, the like high end. I mean, it'll go through turmoil and like companies will come and go, but like people will pay, I think, to see premium content is not a, a, a controversial statement. Like, where does that leave the long tail? You know, and there's different models. Like on Instagram, a lot of it is brand partnerships, which, you know, I understand. Like, if you're an influencer on Instagram, that's how you're going to make a living. But I'm sure you've had this experience where you're just like, this feels like an ad. Is it an ad? It feels a little icky. And like, um, you know, I always thought like authenticity was a thing that was interesting about Instagram. It was like, it wasn't like a brand page. It was like real people talking to you. But like the more commercial it gets, the less it feels that way. And I think 
if you talk to any of these people, they don't wake up in the morning going like, I want to make a like sponsored content today. It's like, it's how they're going to make money and they're making good money in it. But which I think is actually a broader kind of lack of a, another model of, I mean, I don't have the answer, but like whether it's more about crowd support, whether it's more about like letting people like see that and then take it to a level that's commercial. Like one that was really well done. I don't know if you guys know Zach King. He's like a very talented like editor and filmmaker. Um, and what I loved was like when he did a partnership with Coca-Cola, which could have felt totally icky, but like it came from the Coca-Cola voice and almost with him as like a collaborator and it worked. So like there are ways of making these things work and there's obviously money in the ecosystem already. Um, but I think to further it, I think there needs to be viable ways of people like not just having the blockbuster door, or not even just having the like being hired to make, you know, a reasonably sized, you know, short film, but really being able to like have the everyday stuff be somehow an on-ramp towards a sustainable business, if they're good, which not all of them are going to be. Yeah, it's like, how do we make sponsored content more artistic and more creative? And I did a, I, I was talking to Kirsten Lepore, who made a short last year at South by Southwest, or maybe it was two years ago, called High Stranger. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's this weird, sexless man who's just like giving you daily affirmations, essentially. And a vodka company just gave her a, a, a sum of money to make whatever she wanted as long as it had their name on it. So it's stuff like that where it's, you know, here's some money and make whatever you want. We're, we'll sponsor you to make it. This is branded content, I guess. <laughs> So the question, how can we, how can like, we further, further yeah, democratization? democratization I mean, I'm going to be the corny one and say, like, just follow your vision because there's so many opportunities out there. Like, if you have a vision, there's probably a niche audience who also shares that vision and will be excited by it. And with these, like, various platforms like Instagram, YouTube, um, and new distribution models, like, just go for it and, like, you know, stay true to yourself. I, I told you I was going to be corny. But like that's that's what to me is exciting when I go to the movies. I like seeing vision and I like seeing it executed well. Um, so just keep doing that. Um, I think that's what's gonna drive. Like that's the ultimate thing that's driving this industry. It's people just doing what they love. Oh yeah, stop with corny stuff now. So I, I would say that you know the good news is we don't have to do anything because it's just gonna continue to truck forward. But uh, I think kind of Mike to your point that you know finding a business model for all these people that are now have the have the ability to make stuff a sustainable business model for them so they can they can earn a living and it's it's great for the people that that are able to reach you know really to 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 earn a living off of being an influencer it, it there's not a lot of people that reach that level where they where they you know may earn any meaningful dollars uh, so for all the people that are making content uh, that are really talented. There's there's a, there's tons of them out there that don't have an opportunity to turn that into a business. And I think that to your point, the sponsored stuff, it's kind of like that back back room, back door. You don't really know. You know, they, maybe they, some people tag it with an ad, some people don't. But you know, how you go about doing that is is a little bit shady, um, or just feels that way. So how can you know what what platform will provide a way for all these really t really talented people that have access to the equipment that are invited to make and to create how do they how do they earn a living I, I don't I don't have the answer but I think that that would really change things in a big way yeah absolutely you can monetize your gear you can monetize your gear <laughs> split you in the meantime <laughs> yeah we'll you want to take a few more questions before yeah let's take a few more questions
And this person asked, where can I find distribution channels for all this new content? How can filmmakers make money off their content? I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been a really popular VOD model. They exist, but something that's been really popular, where it's like, hey, I'm making content, here's what you can pay for it. None of them have really taken off in the way that people had hoped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have an answer. Don't it's yeah. tough. <laughs> so the question, if I can repeat it, was around um, the two trends that may be in harmony or may be in competition, which is democratization of film, but also consolidation, especially for things like distribution and things like that. And it's an unacknowledged but interesting kind of part of it, which is you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all of these like rely a lot on app stores for distribution, because that's like, I mean, almost every Instagram user is a mobile user, like pe the people that never use Instagram on the web is small, you know, or only use Instagram on the web. And to get distributed, you have to like conform to a set of like content policies that like you know the Apples and Googles of the world have set because that's what they feel like is right for their own platforms. But it is this interesting question, and like you see people push up against it, and not every country has the same like you know cultural standard on it. Not even every city does, not every person does. And so I think you've identified something that I think will be an ongoing conversation, which is as more stories get told, not all of those stories will be palatable to either the like first tier, which is the Instagram, Facebook, whatever's of the world, but the second tier of the stories that they distribute on and also need to conform to that. And like, to me, there needs to be more of a sense of like, hey, we've done our best to like, classify this as something and you know if you're old enough or if you have parental permission or if you've opted into seeing this you should be able to see most legal things right it's like there's obviously some stuff that's off limits i think where we're in right now is a fuzzier phase you know i can't tell you how many people would ask me like hey like why is this photo okay on instagram but not this photo you know like this guy with his shirt off is not okay with this woman and i'm like you know, I'm Brazilian, like I have a pretty wide cultural standard kind of base that I'm building off of, but the reality is like you're building on platforms that are just have different perspectives, which is totally their right to, but it also opens up this question of like what ultimately will we as a society, I know that sounds grandiose, but like decide is allowed on these platforms or not, or how should we navigate that? Okay, great. Let's get a drink. <laughs> Thanks everyone. And, uh... We'll talk to you at there. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you so choose. We'll be back next Monday with another interview episode. You can follow me in the meantime at Jim underscore John underscore Jim on Twitter. And you can follow No Film School at No Film School. Of course, check the website every day for all the latest in filmmaking news, education, and stuff that you'd learn at film school if you had the time or money. See you next week. <laughs>